So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 11th chapter, verses 14 through 20. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And may the Lord bless these words to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him for that illumination. Dear Lord, we know that the world that we live in the material world that we can see and touch that reacts with our senses is not the only world that exists. There's a spiritual world. And this spiritual world is alive with activity, and unfortunately, there's a battle in the midst of that world. And you tell us about it throughout Scripture. And when we come to know you, when we become yours, when our hearts are changed, and especially when we begin to pursue you as your disciples, then we enter that battle. And I pray that as we decipher these words this morning and see how they re- relate to us, that you would open up what you have, have placed here in Luke's heart and mind as he's written it down, that that will be related to us in a very powerful and real way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. One of the great books of Christian literature, Christian fiction, written by C.S. Lewis. Uh, Many of you probably read it. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In fact, how many of you have read that book or at least seen the movie? You've got to be kidding me. Oh, my goodness. I didn't think I was going to have to explain anything here this morning, but I'm going to have to explain just a little bit about what the book is about. It's a fantasy book. It's sort of like an allegory. It's allegorical. There's certain parts of it. But basically, the story goes like this, and I'm just really going to brush over it. There are four youngsters, the Pevensey families during World War II, are shipped off to the middle of England as they were. And there, they are transported through a wardrobe to a magical land called Narnia. And this land, and this is the important part, this land is in the grip of an evil witch. Now, the manifestation of her power and rule over that land is that it's always winter. It's been winter for over a hundred years, and as little Lucy Pevensey says, never Christmas. Uh, What a horrible thought that is. But nonetheless, what happens is the same time that these children are introduced in that land, the Lord of all the land, of all the country, of all domains, also comes and enters the land. And his name is Aslan, and he's a great and powerful, ferocious, but also infinitely good lion. 
And of course, all the animals talk, and there are some wonderful things about it. But as soon as the lion, who of course is a Christ figure, as soon as he enters this domain that is completely controlled by this white witch, well, her spell begins to break down. Now, of course, she's trying to kill the children because there's a prophecy that says when two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve, when they show up, then her spell will be broken. And sure enough, winter begins to thaw a little bit and springtime begins to show up and, and she begins to sort of panic. But And I'm going to kind of condense it together here. When she finds out, and here's the, the point that's relevant, when she finds out that Aslan is in the land. First, she panics. She is in mortal terror of the fact that he's there because she knows that his power is greater than hers. But that doesn't last long. After she has a chance to regain herself, uh, she's maniacally deluded in believing that she can indeed go head on head with this great powerful lion and actually win. So even though one of her lieutenants says, I think it's time to fly. I think we need to get out of here. This is what she says. No, said the witch. There, there need be no flying. Go quickly. Summon all our people to meet me here as speedily as they can. Call out the giants and the werewolves and the spirits of those trees who are on our side. Call the ghouls and the boggles, the ogres and the minotaurs. Call the cruels and the hags and the specters and the people of the toadstool. We shall fight. And the point that I want to make with this, the reason I'm bringing this, is a great story, but there is relevance to what we're going to be seeing in Luke, is that when darkness has the power and is in control and light shines into the darkness. Well, the darkness may be put off for a while, but a storm gathers on the horizon and the darkness fights back. You see, when Jesus came into the world, the world is covered in darkness. It's in the grips of Satan. The manifestation of that is spiritual darkness. And there's one little bitty tiny, tiny bit of light in Palestine, but the rest of the world belongs to Satan and had for millennia. Now, when Jesus comes in, and the very first uh, encounter they have is in the desert, and, and, the de and, and the devil tries to tempt Jesus, when he fails, he kind of shrinks away just a little bit, but not too long, because actually for the rest of Jesus' ministry, the rest of his life, he is going to find ways to oppose him. He is maniacally deluded in believing that he actually can defeat the Son of God. And so therefore, what we are going to see in Luke is that a storm is gathering, a storm on the horizon, and it's going to get more and more intense. And brothers and sisters, that same storm exists on our horizon. The more we grow like Christ, the, the more we become like him, the more involved that we become in the furtherance of his kingdom, the more we show up on Satan's radar screen and the more he will attack. Now, here, here's the focus that I, I want to keep this morning, and it will come out in the context just a wee bit. We've been talking about sanctification. 
That, that's really been the subject on the table. And, and it, it's really been glorious, hadn't it? I mean, many of you have come up after the sermon and says, Boy, I just love that. It makes me feel good. It's all positive. We have seen that there's a sanctifying process where we grow more like Jesus every day and stronger in him. Sanctification through the means of grace. Remember, we go back to that story of Martha and Mary, where Martha is bussing around trying to fix dinner, and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. She has the better portion. She has the one that will never be taken away from her, the only one that is necessary, and that's the image that we have seen. She is absorbing the words of Jesus, and that's one of the means of grace whereby we become strong. And then Jesus begins to talk about prayer. And we've spent the last several Sundays talking about that very concise 38-word model prayer that he gives. And, but in that, we, we notice that there was a whole new language. But that in and of itself is a, is a means of grace whereby we grow closer to the Lord. And, and then as we went through that prayer and we saw the incredible privilege of calling God Father. And the fact that the very first thing that Jesus wanted us to do was to hallow his name. To hold him holy in our own souls. And then that we were to uh, be involved with the furtherance of his kingdom. Well, that's what this whole story is going to be about. And of course, even when we asked for the things we needed, we were bringing glory to God because it showed our dependence on him and our thankfulness to him and it built trust in him. And of course, when we asked for forgiveness, once again, that also brought glory to God because he's the one that arranged for that forgiveness, atonement through his plan of redemption. And finally, he is also the one who protects us from the evil one. So all of these things have been very positive. But notice what happens here. Almost without warning, without any uh, uh, discussion, Luke abruptly goes from that very positive discussion of our own sanctification and all of a sudden we're face to face with demonic activity. We're face to face with confrontation. We're face to face with people calling Jesus a demon because of what he does. And we're face to face with spiritual warfare. Now, why did Luke do that? Now, that's the question that we're going to have before us this morning. Why? Why would he immediately, after all this positive sanctification discussion, immediately, boom, all of a sudden, here we are smacking our face, spiritual warfare. Well, let me just give you a hint of where we're headed this morning. It's because we've learned all through that over the last several weeks. We have learned that we do what we do for the glory of God. The existence that we have, the prayers that we have, the work that we do, the ministry that we do. It is all for the glory of God, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But there's another reason for sanctification. And the reason for sanctification is that in order to further the kingdom of God, in order to break into the darkness that holds its grip upon this world, the Lord needs strong, disciplined, obedient, battle-ready saints to be able to stand against the gathering storm. So we're going to see that there's another reason that we have for being sanctified. Now, We have a lot of text, so let's jump into it because Jesus is going to have a confrontation immediately. So look in the 14th verse. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people 
marveled. Notice the matter-of-fact way that Luke puts that. It's just like, okay, another day, another demon, you know? It's like it just goes on every single day, and we know that Jesus cast out an innumerable number of demons, and I want you to be cognizant of that when we start asking, well, is this the same one that Matthew talks about, or is this a, a, a unique and a distinct thing? So there's, there, there's a... a, 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 a a distinct um, uh, goings-on that happens over and over again. Jesus was constantly casting out demons, taking people who were demon-possessed, and then removing the demon and restoring them to a positive life. In other words, injecting light into the darkness, injecting good into the midst of evil. That's going to be significant as we go on. Now, I also want you to notice this. I don't know if you remember, when we, when we talked about the prayer, uh, um, the, the Lord's Prayer, there were so many who wanted to say, well, this is exactly the same prayer that Jesus taught back in the Sermon on the Mount, back in Galilee, over a year earlier, and Luke is just kind of willy-nilly picking it up and adding it here in sort of a random fashion. Well, they say the same thing about this particular demon possession because there are some very similar um, aspects of this to both something that happens in Matthew and something that happens in Mark. And so even though they happened an entire year before this, even though they were in Galilee, and even though the specifics are different, I don't think that that particular man was also blind. And Luke, being the historian physician, I don't think he would have probably missed that particular detail. But nonetheless, everything about the context is completely different. So I think that one of the reasons Luke presents this in just such a matter-of-fact fashion is that this is not the same casting out of a demon that occurred earlier in Matthew and Mark. And I'll explain why I think that's significant in just a moment. I also want you to notice that it was the demon who was mute. Notice that. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. Now, the man was mute not because he had any physical reason to be mute, He was mute because the demon who indwelt him was mute. And by the way, uh, probably remember that the Greek word for mute and deaf are exactly the same word. So usually when that word is used, it's not just someone who can't speak. It is someone who can't hear either, a deaf mute. And that's quite interesting, isn't it, when we put it into the context of these means of grace that we've been talking about because we hear the word of God. That's the way we grow. We speak to God through our prayers. That's the way we grow. Well, this man had no ability to do either one. And Jesus is setting him free. That's what he does. He leads a train of captains of captives, as Brother Clayton read earlier, to free them from the domination of evil. Now, there's something that, again, sort of an aside, and if I had more time, I'd go deeper into it. But I want you to notice something. The man is mute. Why? Because the demon is mute. So the demon completely controls the, 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 the personality. He controls the ability to hear or speak or, or, or anything of the man. In other words, he becomes dominant in that particular person. That's the nature of the kingdom of darkness. It's dominating the people. It, it, it makes captives of them. It makes slaves of the people that it holds under its power. 
Now, I, I don't know about you, but that sends a chill up my back. Because unlike the kingdom of the church, the kingdom of God as it is manifest in the church, unlike this hopelessly seemingly divided group of people, the kingdom of evil is unified. The kingdom of evil is monolithic. The kingdom of evil is on the same page. And that's exactly the point that Jesus is going to be making later on. So when we fight battles against the powers of evil, we're fighting battles against a unified, undivided kingdom. Well, nonetheless, we see the reaction that people had when Jesus was casting out these demons. Um, that um, they were marveling at him. Now, of course, we know this. In reading the, the Gospels, we see so many miracles and we see the people just wanting more, right? It just, just because they marveled over Jesus and, and, and this great miracle does not mean that they are actually accepting that as a miracle. Um, they're not accepting Jesus as authoritative in their life. It's kind of like, you know, if we were to see a five-year-old sit down and play Beethoven on a piano, a a child prodigy, we would marvel at that child, but we're not going to accept him as authoritative in our lives. That's what's going on with Jesus as he worked these many miracles. He's casting out demons. He's he's feeding 5,000 people with just a couple of loaves of bread and doing many things that only God can do. And the people are amazed, but they're not, miracles actually didn't save anyone. It is a change of the heart through the Holy Spirit. Well, anyway, Some of these people are marveling, but notice what happens in verse 15. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now, notice once again, I I just keep drilling this into you about Luke, the historian, who is so good with details and names and dates. Here, once again, he's vague. He doesn't tell us. Who is saying this? He just said someone, you know. Now, if you go back into Matthew and you see the very similar story in Matthew, Matthew says it was the Pharisees who did this. Mark actually goes a little bit farther. Mark actually tells us how this all came about. In Mark 3, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And this is significant, brothers and sisters, at least it is in my mind. Because remember, I told you, this isn't the same event that Luke has just picked up and shown here. And and, and what it tells me is that that group of scribes who came to Galilee over a year ago to check Jesus out could not say he's not working miracles. No one said, hey, this is fake. They have to explain it away another way. So the way they explain it away is he's not casting out demons by the power of God. He's casting out demons by the power of Satan. Now they go back to Jerusalem and they start to spread that malicious lie through the synagogues. So that everywhere that Jesus goes, people are ready for him. People are waiting. Imagine that you're in this crowd. And imagine that you're watching Jesus cast out a demon and you look at it and you see it before your eyes. A man that you knew couldn't speak all of a sudden speaking. Okay? And you say to your friend next to you, says, man, did you see that? Surely this must be the Son of God. Surely this is the Messiah. And your friend says, well, obviously you hadn't heard. You hadn't heard what the, what the leaders are saying in Jerusalem. This man is not working in the power of God. He's working with the power of Satan. So don't believe him. 
So you see, it's a malicious lie that has already been spread around so that the people's hearts are already hard before Jesus even gets there. And so that's one of the reasons, I think, that this is so significant. Well, anyway, they accuse him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. All right. Obviously, that's code name, if you will, for Satan. That's uh, um, that's that's what it's referring to. But I, I want you to see something. There's something more here that w- that we need to kind of delve into. Um, Beelzebul is sort of a corruption of a, a, a Philistine god called Beelzebub. Beelzebub, we read about <laughs> in one of those great stories back in, in Kings. Um, there was a king, actually he's the son of, uh, of Ahab, you know how wicked Ahab was, and, and then Ahaziah is his son, he's just as wicked, and he falls through a roof, and he's really sick, so he sends some messengers to Ekron, that's one of the Philistine cities where the ark actually went to when they actually lost it in the battle of Ebenezer back at the time of Samuel, before the time of Samuel, but nonetheless, that's, each one of these little areas had its own God. And the god of Ekron was a god called Beelzebub. And so they send, he sends messengers to Ekron to inquire. And Elijah hears about it and meets him on the road. And this is what Elijah says. Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? You remember in those days, every little area sort of had its own god. They were, they were very localized, except, of course, for Yahweh. But nonetheless, this God, if you take that name, Baal means Lord, and Zebub actually means flies. So the name of this God is Lord of the flies. Now, no one's right, quite sure how that got changed from Baal Zebub to Beelzebul, but more than likely, Again, they would demonize the gods of other countries. Everybody did this, not just Israel. And so they would form derogatory names for it. So obviously, Beel, Beel, Zebub, Beel is very close to Baal. But Zebel is suspiciously sounds like the Hebrew word Zebel, which is the Hebrew word for dung. So in other words, this corruption of Beelzebub is Lord of the dung heap, where the flies congregate. Was there ever a more blasphemous statement on the lips of human beings than to call the son of Yahweh incarnate the Lord of the dung heap and to associate that blasphemy with him? Now, brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. If you were to tell me, if you were to accuse me one day and come to me and say, you know something, Pastor Kirby, I think you're an agent of Satan. I think you're the Lord of the dung heap. And that's what I think about your sermons. Well, I I would be offended. And not to say it, not a little hurt if you were to say that to me. But it would be one thing for you to say that to me. A fallen, sinful, you know, um, a second-rate preacher. It's another thing to say it to the very Son of the living God incarnate in human flesh that even the devils knew 
They, they looked at Jesus and they say, what do you have to do with us, son of the most high God? They knew who Jesus was. And here the very people that Jesus came to save are calling him the Lord of the dung heap. And saying that rather than casting out demons and doing mighty works in the name of God, he is doing it in the name of the devil. That's why R.C. Sproul says this. says it was in this moment that they came very close to committing the unpardonable sin. And you know something? This isn't the only time they accused Jesus of having a demon. It's all throughout. If you go back and you start looking at the times that they accused Jesus of being demonic. In John, in, in the seventh chapter, they flat out say, you have a demon. In the eighth chapter, they say, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now we know that you have a demon. In the 10th chapter, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? You know something? If you cannot explain away the power that he is wielding, attribute it to the devil. And people believe them in that. Well, that's what Jesus is going to counteract. And he's going to do it brilliantly. And he's going to do it using pristine formal logic. And I'm not going to get technical on you. This is one of those days that I wish we had the after church because I could go off on an hour's worth of tangent just talking about formal logic. Because logic is the way you prove something to be true or false, at least in, in our mindset. It's like a mathematical equation. We have equations, 2 plus 2 equals 4, okay? That's a mathematical equation. And every time you add 2 and 2 together, it Comes out four. Well, if, if you follow a logical equation and, and, and the first premise is true and the second premise is true, then, the, then the, the conclusion is true. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. And he starts out by a proverb that is a true proverb. So take a look at verse 17. Oh, by the way, verse 16, while he, others to test him kept seeking from a sign from heaven. Well, that's going to be uh, addressed later on down in the 29th verse. And so we're going to deal with that verse then when Jesus talks more about people who are looking just for a sign. Obviously, the healing of a man that was demon-possessed was not enough for these folks. They wanted something cosmic. They wanted something even more spectacular than that. But that's not what they're going to get. But anyway, look at the 17th verse. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, We don't know whether or not Jesus is, this is the omniscient God nature of Jesus who knows the thoughts, or whether he's just wise and knowing, looks at them and recognizes their body language and the intonation of their words, what's going on in their hearts and minds. I tend to think because of the nature of this, because we have entered the spiritual world now, I kind of think this is the omniscient divine nature of Christ who looks into their hearts and sees the evil intent that is there. But nonetheless, he knows their thoughts and he says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. With a proverb of sorts, he kind of states something that is actually very obvious to most of us, and that is that a kingdom divided 
will follow. This is one of the basic aspects of military um, 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 activity. I mean, you know that divide and conquer is one of the ways. You you don't want to face a unified um, uh, front. You you try to get two fronts going on at the same time so that their, their resources will be divided. If you can separate them, then you can conquer in that way. And so Jesus is saying the exact same thing. It is a a, a definite um, uh, understood truth. Notice that he starts out with the word every, every kingdom. And I think that would apply to household as well. Household would not be just one house where a biological family lives. More than likely it's a city or or a clan or or a, a tribe or an entire group of people. But the same principle applies regardless. That if they are divided, if you can separate them, they're not going to be as strong as they are if they're unified. But it's one thing, brothers and sisters, to have a kingdom divided. It's another thing to have a kingdom divided against itself. Because when a kingdom is divided against itself, it doesn't mean that just people have different opinions. It means that they basically hate each other and are that far away with contending with each other or battling with each other or going into civil war. In fact, I think Jesus is being somewhat prophetic here because in just about 40 years, that's exactly what's going to happen to Israel. When Israel rebels against Rome and Rome sends their armies and they come down from the north, they drive a group known as the Zealots before them. And all the zealots end up in Jerusalem, a walled city. And and, and the Romans just simply circled around the city and laid siege to it. And Josephus, the historian of the day, tells us that they just sat back and waited for the Jews inside the city to kill each other. Because civil war broke out between the zealots and the Sadducees and nobles who were in the city. Christians are already gone by that time because Jesus warned them to flee when this began to happen. But nonetheless, it was very prophetic. They, 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 they were divided against each other. So it was nothing eventually to bring them to their knees. Now, brothers and sisters, I have absolutely no intention of following this up. But I think that this is something that our country could pay attention to, don't you? I have never seen this country more divided. I have never seen it. I don't think it has been this divided since the Civil War. And and not only is it divided, not only do people have different opinions, they're antagonistic towards each other. And they keep pulling apart divisions, whether it is political division. Social divisions, financial divisions, racial divisions, gender divisions. It doesn't matter what it is. We need to recognize something. That any country divided against itself will be laid to waste. And to think that enemies of this country and enemies of freedom and enemies of democracy do not sit there and salivate over our resources is simply arrogant blindness. There, I said my piece. I'm not going to say any more. But nonetheless, that's the proverb, that's the statement, and it is a true statement that Jesus makes. Now, he's going to go on. Notice what he says in the 18th verse. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Now, he he takes that proverb or that principle and he applies it to Satan. And, And basically what he's saying is here is, look, I've been 
doing good things. That's what I'm, I'm, I'm doing good. I mean, I'm bringing the kingdom of heaven here. And I'm taking people who are under the oppression of, of, of demonic activity and I'm freeing them. They go back into society. They can talk. They can be, uh, you know, good people within their neighborhoods and in their culture. They can go back to their families. They're productive. It, it is good for the city. It is good for the family. It is good for the kingdom. It's all good. Satan's all evil. <laughs> Satan doesn't do good, folks. Never. He does nothing but evil. And so Jesus is saying, you're telling me that I am casting out demons by the power of a demon. And that just doesn't make any sense. That's ridiculous. Kingdoms that do that don't stand. They're laid to waste. And the Satan in the kingdom of darkness, at the time he said that, virtually owned the world, folks. Don't forget that. Don't forget that the entire world at that time is in the grasp of Satan. It's in darkness. There's only one little tiny bit of light. And that's in Palestine right now. And Jesus and his disciples and a few faithful of the Messianic community. Other than that, the whole world is in the power of Satan. And Jesus says, that's ridiculous for you to say that he has a kingdom that would be so divided against itself. And once again, chills go up my spine. Because you see, Jesus is saying that that's not the way Satan's kingdom is. It's not a divided kingdom. It's not a kingdom that is contending with itself. It's a kingdom of monolithic evil. And it exists in this world. And he has people under his grip. And I have come to set those people free. That's the reason that Jesus has come. So he points out the absolute, complete, and total absurdity of what they're accusing him of. So, with one logical statement, it made it clear, the conclusion there is, guess what? Satan doesn't cast out Satan. So, if I cast out um, uh, uh, demons, I'm doing it by the power of God. Besides, Satan doesn't have that power. Satan can't cast out demons of himself. But then he's going to turn his second logical argument. He's already made one. It should be enough, but he's going to make another one. Look in the second part of verse 18. For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Notice the language here. I've told you so many times that Jesus is kind of an in-your-face preacher. All right. Notice that he repeats their accusation twice here. And he uses the word Beelzebub. Have you ever said anything that's so stupid that you wish it never came out of your mouth? You know, and you're just so ashamed of it, but whoever you said it to is wise enough to throw it back in your face a couple of times? Just to sort of needle you, I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He repeats their stupid accusation twice. The first is just the, this is what you said. But the second one is a hypothetical question. He said, I've already proven that Satan doesn't cast out Satan. And that's an absurd, an absurd argument. But just for argument's sake, let's say that I do cast out demons by the power of Satan. Let's just assume for argument's sake that that's how demons get cast out. So your disciples who are casting out demons... By whose power are they casting out demons? Because if I'm casting out by the power of Satan, then 
who are they casting theirs out as well? Now, I don't know about you, that that kind of throws me off. Um, the disciples of Judaism were casting out demons at that time. And it's impossible for us to know whether they actually were or not. Josephus seemed to think they were, you know, but he's kind of, he, he gets off on certain things as an ancient historian. But the, the, the important part is they thought that they were doing it. You see, even today, you have a lot of people who talk an awful lot about casting out demons. And, you know, they've seen this and they've seen that. And it always seems to be sort of in a mystical, sort of a vague sense. That very seldom do you have incontrovertible evidence of a, of a demon that has been cast out. So I, I don't know whether or not the, 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 the sons of the, of the Jews of Judaism, the disciples of Judaism, were actually casting out demons. But actually, that doesn't matter for this particular argument. The fact of the matter is, is that they thought they were. And so Jesus asks the rhetorical question, if I cast out by, by, by the devil, and that's how you cast out a demon, then what are your sons doing? Oh, watch them in a quick, oh, no, 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 not our, not our guys. We're not casting out by the power of demons. We're casting out by the power of God. So Jesus is basically saying, so what's the difference? How come it's different for me, and it's not different for you. How come they're using the power of God and I'm doing exactly the same thing and you're saying I'm doing it by the power of Satan. So you see, he's using another argument. And in fact, he goes on and he says, those are, the, those are your judges. They're the ones that are showing your absurd accusation as being categorically false. Because if you say I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, then you got to accept that they're doing it too. But they're not. So therefore, it leads us to the 20th verse. And the 20th verse is, I have to say, one of my favorite verses um, anywhere in Scripture. I know I say that all the time, but they're all my favorite verses. But I love this verse. Let's read it together. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Notice, first of all, the strong adversative, but... Okay, I made a hypothetical question. I said, what if I actually was doing that? But that's not reality. But let's turn around. Now let's talk about reality. Let's talk about the reality that you actually face. So there's a turnaround here. But if, notice that, folks. He uses an if-then statement. And I've talked to you about if-then statements all the time. As an old computer nerd, I'm telling you, that's one of the foundational statements of all computer programming. That's how machines can make decisions. They evaluate a condition, and if that condition evaluates to true, then 100% of the time, whatever follows the then will be executed. If the first part of an if-then statement is true, then by necessity, the second part is also true. Back in the 15th chapter of John, we studied it this way. Jesus said, if you love me, condition, then you will keep my commandments. I mean, 100% of the time, if you love Jesus, you will keep his commandments, or at least try to, as much as it's humanly possible. If you don't keep his commandments, you could care less about following him, then guess what? You don't love Jesus no matter how you say, how much you say you do. That's what an if-then statement says. That's the power of an if-then statement. So Jesus says, if 
Actually, I cast out demons by the finger of God. Then, 100% true, the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. That phrase, finger of God, is out of the Old Testament. And when I I read it the first time, I, I have to admit, where my mind went was the story of Daniel and Belshazzar and, uh, you know, the writing on the wall, you have been tried and measured and come up inadequate or whatever it actually said. But that's not the finger of God. It never uses the word finger there, although I thought it did. It's talked about the hand of God. So the finger of God is only used twice, actually, in the Old Testament, used by Moses to describe the way that the stone tablets tablets of the Ten Commandments were inscribed. He says it in Exodus, and he says it again in Deuteronomy. It says these were written by the finger of God. It's talking about the supernatural origin of the writing on those stone tablets. But, but even though that really puts it into the realm of the supernatural, I, I don't think that's what Jesus is referring to here. Actually, oddly enough, I think that the, the words that he's quoting actually came out of the mouth of pagans. It, it, it comes during the, the great plagues of Egypt. If you remember when Moses went into Egypt and he started working these mighty miracles, well, Pharaoh's magicians came right along and were through smoke and mirrors trying to match his tricks, if you will. Remember when he threw his staff down and, and, and they came right along, they threw their staff down and it turned to a snake and Pharaoh says, ah, yeah, that's a cheap magician's trick. So right along the way, they're trying to do that until they got to the gnats and they couldn't do the gnats. And so this is what they said. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on men and beasts. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is something that only God can do. This is the power of the almighty God, a God we don't know, but Moses God. He is the one who is accomplishing this through his power, and we have no power over it. That's what Jesus is saying. If indeed I am casting out demons, and you might as well include the rest of the mighty miracles that he's doing. If the things that you are seeing are the things that are brought about by the finger, the power, the essence of God, then the following statement is absolutely irrevocably true. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That word upon you. And the context that it is used is a single word in the Greek. It means that a power has come upon you. A power that overwhelms you. That shapes you. That guides you. Against which you have no recourse. This power now is the power. And in fact, it is a word that is quite often used of the blessings of God. And that's very, very true here, folks. Keep it in mind. For God's elect, for those he's called out of darkness, for those he's called according to his purpose, this is the greatest news that has ever happened. This is the releasing of the captives. These are those who are in darkness seeing a great light. And the power of the almighty God has come into the darkness and the captives are being set free. It's the greatest blessing and the greatest news they've ever heard. But not for the agents of evil. For the agents of evil, it's not just a warning. 
It's a threat. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Satan, you've had a free hand for millennia, ever since the fall. And you knew this. You knew there was a prophecy. You knew that there was going to come one who was going to stomp on your head. And guess what? He's here. The kingdom of heaven is upon you. Now, when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, uh, that's, a, that's a huge topic. In fact, the whole book of Luke is about the kingdom of heaven. So obviously, we're not going to be able to cover it in just this short period of time. But there's two things I want you to remember about the kingdom of heaven. First of all, it's the only kingdom. There really is only one kingdom, and that's the kingdom of God. Okay? Kingdom of Satan, and here's what I want you to, I don't want you to look at the kingdom of Satan and say this great monolithic power. Yeah, as far as we are concerned, it's overwhelmingly, devastatingly powerful, but not for God. See, as far as God is concerned, it's just a rebellious fiefdom in his kingdom. And he could stomp that, that whole kingdom out at any time he wanted to. But he doesn't do it for his own purposes according to his own eternal decree and his own providential will. That doesn't mean he can't do it. That doesn't mean we don't know who wins. That doesn't mean that we're in a yin and yang situation and that the, the devil can somehow do what he thinks he can do, maniacally deluded as he is. He thinks he can overwhelm and overcome the power of God. He can't do it because there's only one kingdom, and that's the kingdom of God. But that kingdom of God is here in one sense and not yet in another, and we've also talked about this. Kingdom of God's a very complex idea. But the kingdom of God, John sees it in the apocalypse. He sees the door in heaven and he sees the throne room of God. He sees the angels and he sees the martyrs and he sees people, uh, uncountable number of saints there singing and praising God for an eternity. That's the kingdom of God as it exists, but that's not yet as far as we are concerned. That's the kingdom that we will spend eternity in if you know Christ as your Savior. But there's also a sense in which the kingdom of God is here. So it's here and now. And that's what Jesus is saying. I am the king of that kingdom. When I sent the 72 out, I said, tell them that the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is near because the king of that kingdom has come. And he is now here offering you salvation. And if you accept the free offer of salvation, then you will see that kingdom. Otherwise, you will never enter it. Because there's only one way to enter that kingdom. That is through the cross of Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father except through me, he says. And so therefore, it's only through Jesus that you will ever enter into that kingdom. But there is a sense in that, that the kingdom is, is, is not yet. But there's also a kingdom that is here right now. And, and, and the reformers used to talk about the church as the church militant. The church militant was the church at war. And, and that speaks of a spiritual battle, folks. And that is whether you choose to accept it or not. That is where we are headed. That is what Luke is telling us. That is what Jesus is making clear. That is why Luke makes such an abrupt change. That sanctification is not just necessary for the glory of God. Sanctification is necessary because you need armor and you need weapons. These are the armor and weapons that you're going to deal with. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a moment, but... At this particular point in time, what I wanted to do is I wanted to branch out and spend about an hour um, talking about the formal logic that Jesus has just brought out. Because it really is, it, it is pristine logic, and it's fascinating for those of us who enjoy these kind of nerdy things. 
Um, but instead of going into it, I'm just going to kind of touch on it just so you see what Jesus has done. Jesus has made two, a logical equation, you can forget this word as soon as I say it, a logical equation is a syllogism, that's the way you prove something in logic, in formal logic. I took the logic, by the way, under Dr. Sproul when I was in seminary, and he was big on this kind of thing. But the first equation that Jesus said, we go back and he says, A, a kingdom that, uh, a kingdom that is divided will not stand. That's the first thing that he said, absolutely true. And the second statement is also true. If Satan cast out Satan, it is a kingdom divided. Therefore, the conclusion is also true. Satan does not cast out demons. Only God cast out demons. And so then he makes a second logical statement. It goes like this. Demons are either cast out by God or cast out by Satan. I have just proven that he doesn't, he's not cast out by Satan. But your disciples are casting out demons. I am casting out demons. So therefore, the logical conclusion is that your disciples and myself, Jesus speaking, are both casting out demons by the same power. If they cast them out by the power of the devil, then I do. But I'm not because they cast them out by the power of God. So therefore, so do I. Two logical statements, two logical conclusions. Then he makes the third by putting them all together. The first statement is the Messiah will come working miracles and casting out demons in the name of God the Father, the finger of God. The second premise, I have come casting out demons and working miracles in the name of God the Father by the finger of God. Therefore, I am the Messiah I am the Son of God, and the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. Notice, by the way, that that has come upon you. That's not future. You you expect it maybe to be the future. It's not future. It's present. He says it's here. It's here and now. Now, the reason that I really wanted to go into that discussion of, uh, of, of logic is I want you never to forget, please, that Jesus is appealing to your mind. He, he, he already owns your soul if you're his. He paid for it. He bought it with his blood. Okay, It's not yours anymore. You belong to him. Your soul is his. He put it in your heart. But you know, your mind and your body need to catch up. And Jesus wants to appeal to your mind. We live in an environment where it's all about my feelings. It's all about sentimentality. It's all about my emotions. That's the only way that God talks to me is through my emotions. Well, Jesus appeals to your mind because he wants your mind, as Paul says, to be the mind of Christ. So we come to know and we come to be sanctified in Jesus through our minds. All right, let me wrap this up. We've been studying sanctification. And we've been studying the fact that... um, that sanctification is for the glory of God. We made that point over the last several weeks, over and over again. It's for the, our chief end, our chief purpose for existence is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But sanctification is also basic training, brothers and sisters. Those of you who have been in the military know this. When you join the military or you get drafted, do they stick a gun in your hand and send you to the front? Day one? 
well, they, they may have done that in some times, but, but not under the normal conditions. They send you to basic training camp. They train you how to be a soldier. They teach you. They give you the tools. They prepare you. They strengthen you. That's what sanctification is, brothers and sisters. There's a reason that we are here. There is a reason that you are here at this particular point in time. Now, I hear an awful lot of complaints about, oh, the times are terrible, and this is the worst situation that has ever been. Did you realize that you are here for such a time as this? That you have been placed here, and what your job is to be strengthening yourself through the means of grace, sanctification, so that you can stand against the gathering storm. That's one of the processes that we have. Jesus... He made this clear. That's what's happening now in Luke. Is there's a gathering storm on the horizon. And it's going to gain in intensity right up to the crucifixion. But it's not going to go away. You know, Satan's the kind of a being that just like somebody standing in a heavy surf. And a big huge wave comes. Well, he knows if he stands against that wave it's going to knock him down. So what does he do? He just ducks down, lets the wave roll over him. And he stands right back up again and goes back to work. That's what he does with each one of us. That's what he has done throughout the history of the church. He continues to to motivate his sources. And Jesus told us this was going to happen. John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, the Bible teaches you that you need to grow in Christ through the means of grace. And one thing that brings glory to God, but guess what it also does? Puts you on Satan's radar screen. And he's going to start attacking you. And he's going to start trying to find ways to undermine you. He may run away for once, but then he's going to come right back with his crowd if he can. And this is heading to some of the other passages that follow this. But we are called to be like Christ, to think like Christ, to act like Christ, to grow like Christ. And in particular, brothers and sisters, in the context of what we have just learned, to pray like Christ. Let me tell you something. You stand before a being as powerful as Satan... He's going to knock you down with a flick of your finger, with his finger. But there is one thing that he fears more than anything else. That is a Christian on his or her knees praying to God. Praying Christians, praying saints is his greatest fear. Churches that pray, his greatest fear. We want to stand against the darkness. We want to make an impact. We want to further the kingdom of God. Then we need to be on our knees, each and every one of us, praying That the power of God would be manifest through us. Because the kingdom of God is upon us. Do you realize that this is what Jesus was saying? Remember the the 72 that he sent out? And they went out and they cast out demons and they came back. Jesus, he was just beside himself. He was overjoyed. He says, I'm watching the skies and I'm seeing Satan fall like lightning over and over again. There's a soul. There's a soul. There's a soul. Captives to the darkness brought into the light. That's the process by which the kingdom of heaven grows. People dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Um, Paul quotes what uh, what Brother Clayton read earlier. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives into freedom. That's what we're called to do. 
But just like when Aslan entered Narnia, he triggered a battle. When we do this, we trigger a battle. And if you don't believe me, if you say balderdash, you say it's a bunch of hooey. Well, once again, let's just turn to, the, to what it says in Scripture. Revelation 12 puts it this way, Then the dragon, which is the devil, became furious with the woman, which is the church, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, which is you and me, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Now, brothers and sisters, I have, I have one more point to make, and I'm going to let you go. As I said, it brings chills to my spine to think about the kingdom that we face because it's a kingdom of abject evil, and it's monolithic evil. And, and this is where we're going in Luke. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. It is unified monolithic uh, evil, and we are anything but unified within the church of Jesus Christ. And so we know that one of the things that Jesus wants out of us is unification, to love each other, to be on the same page. But brothers and sisters, don't misinterpret that. That does not mean we become tolerant. It doesn't mean we compromise. It doesn't mean we water down the gospel. It doesn't mean we accept doctrine that is in error or heretical. That is not at all what it means to be unified. That, in fact, is disunity. Even if you talk about unity as an overage of that, unification in the, in, in, the, in the church is unification in Christ. It is following Jesus. It, it, it is what he taught us to do. It is his lampstand in the midst of us. It is all gravitating towards him and circling around him. It is his gospel, his teaching, his word that determines what it means to be unified in Christ. It has nothing to do with compromise. In fact, let me give you a principle. Jesus did not come to compromise with the darkness. He came to destroy it. Let me repeat that, brothers and sisters, because that is something that the church today needs to hear. Jesus did not come to compromise, to to make peace with the darkness, to get along with evil, and, and to make those who are agents of Satan and still lost to feel good about themselves. That's not why Jesus came. He came to destroy the darkness and replace it with a kingdom of good, a kingdom of light. And you say, well, that's mighty harsh. That is really countercultural. You're talking about going out there and fighting wars. Yeah, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Notice the weapons that Jesus has just given us. Notice the kind of weapons that we fight this war with. The weapon, number one weapon that we have is the love of God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, we learn in the parable of the Good Samaritan that not only do you love your neighbor, you love your enemies. And then Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus, absorbing the word of Christ, learning how to pray, learning the privilege that you have to go before the Father and to ask Him for the things that you need and to glorify Him and to further His kingdom. 
through the evangelism of the apostles in the 72. These are our weapons. The gospel of Jesus, the salvation and redemption of Christ. That is our weapon. Not hate, not anger, not bitterness, and certainly not physical. Our greatest weapon that we have is love. So when we read in Revelation, once again, now the war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting back against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fighting back against the forces of good, we recognize what's going on. We recognize that we live in a spiritual world just like we live in a materialistic world. And that all around us, whether you choose to accept it or not, there is a battle going on. And the way that you prepare yourself for this battle is through the means of grace. How many times can I drill that into you? There's nothing new. There's no silver bullet. It is the means of grace that Jesus has given us. And I leave you with this. The words of Paul to the Ephesians. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand, to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Brothers and sisters, you're called to sanctification by the means of grace so that you will stand against the gathering storm to be continued. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you the glory. We recognize that you don't need us to fight this battle. But you have prepared us for it. You have placed us where we are at a time that you've placed us here. You have given us the gospel. You have given us the truth. You have called us to your word. You have, you, you have surrounded us by the means of grace. And we know that sometimes we feel that every single solitary day is difficult. It weighs upon us. We, we lament the fact that those around us seem like they're just having a good time and relaxing. And, and, and we seem to be fighting a battle that we can't see. But we realize, dear Lord, that you raised us up for such a time as this. And that you will give us the strength. You will give us the power. You will give us the, the forbearance that we need. And the weapons that we need to wage the spiritual war that you've put us in, in the middle of. We'll give you the glory, dear Lord, because it all belongs to you. And we look forward to a time where there will be no more sin, no more anger, no more hatred, and no more battles. Nothing but your glory. And we give that to you even now in Christ's name. Amen.